look at the uh, Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there and follow along with me as I read through this. Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Speak to us today by your Holy Spirit. Encourage us and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, in just two months, the Winter Olympics are going to be held in Vancouver, British Columbia. Now, uh, you know, if you're like me, when you heard that, you're going, wow, I didn't realize it was coming up so soon. But it's one of those events that I enjoy watching. I'm sure many of you do, too. Uh, the level of excellence in their athletic skill always amazes me in the different areas of competition. But I have to admit that there are some sports where I think they must be a little bit nuts to do this. You know, stuff like ski jumping, <laughs> even the luge, or even downhill skiing. You know, you take an event like downhill skiing. Now, this year it's going to be taking place on what's called the Dave Murray Downhill Course. We have a picture of it here. This is just the bottom part of the course. But there are parts that are just so steep, it's got to be... Uh, for a normal person, it's a little bit intimidating to think about going down a course like this. The object of downhill skiing is to make it down, obviously, as fast as you can. And uh, this particular course was named after Dave Murray, who was one of the crazy Canucks. That's what they were called in the 70s and 80s. They had a team that did quite well. They, uh, in a series of competitions, were on the podium 19 out of 20 times. And he was one of the best in that group. Well, when I look at downhill skiing and you think about uh, these individuals will reach speeds of 90 miles an hour, heading down that course, making the twists and turns all the way to the bottom, you kind of wonder at times, why would anyone do that? <laughs> 90 miles an hour on skis, that is living on the edge here. And uh, you know sometimes they take these horrendous falls and then they end up, you know, hopefully getting back up again and they do it all over one more time. Obviously, they believe that the prize is worth the risk. And they are willing to train and they're willing to devote years of their life to the accomplishment of their goal. Why would they do that? They believe the prize is worth the risk. Now, I think the Apostle Paul lived like that too. Paul was willing to risk everything for the sake of Christ. And some people thought he was crazy also. 
They looked at Paul's life. They looked at the things that he suffered. They looked at how he could even be beaten or thrown in prison or stoned and left for dead. And there were times when he got back up and went back into the city and continued to preach the gospel. Why did Paul do that? He believed the prize was worth the risk. In Philippians 3, verses 12 to 15, he wrote this, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. And brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Okay, so here's Paul's attitude. I am pressing on toward that goal. I am willing to forget what was behind. I'm willing to lay all of that aside to attain the prize for which Christ has called me forward. But then what strikes me is verse 15 where he says that all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Basically, he's saying, you know, this is the way you ought to think if you are mature in Christ. And if you're not there yet, I can't convince you, but I pray that God will. There is a sense in which we should all be downhill skiers. We should all be risk takers for the kingdom. And you may not be at that point today, and there may be times when you have wanted to play it safe, but I'm going to challenge you to take a risk for the sake of the kingdom and to give your very best effort to him. In this passage that we read this morning, Paul describes his apostolic ministry to the Colossians. And there are some things that are unique to his calling, but there are things that are true for every believer in Christ. Some of us, God calls into full-time vocational ministry. But all of us are called into ministry in some respect. That all of us are called to use our gifts in serving Him and to be involved in the ministry of a local church. So what does that mean for each of us? And what does that look like? That's what I want to walk through as we go through this passage this morning. Number one, a call to ministry is a call to suffering. A call to ministry is a call to suffering. Now that's not something that we like to hear. In fact, most Americans would rather avoid suffering and most of us would rather do that too if we could. But to be involved in ministry is to be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ. In fact, it is a call to self-denial and that's often where it begins. Jesus said that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If you think about the choices that Jesus presents there, he says, yeah, you can follow the way of the world and you can think that you are achieving success or you can try to accumulate all the things in this life that you would like to have, but in the end, if you don't know Christ, you will lose it all, even your very life. 
Or you can live in such a way that denies yourself the things that this world may choose to give you and instead you put Christ first and you choose to follow him with all your heart and you trust him with the time and the treasures that you have been given and you use that for his honor and glory and God will bless and you will gain life in the end. Now think about Paul. Paul's suffering was both physical and emotional. In passages like the one in 2 Corinthians, he described many of the things that he went through, the floggings, the beatings, the imprisonment, the shipwrecks, the hard work, the hunger, the sleepless nights, the cold, the dangers from people, dangers in travel, and above all that, he said, was the concern that he felt for all of the churches. It was the weight of ministry that he felt the concern for the believers in these churches, just like Colossa. And he prayed for them, and he wanted to see them growing in Christ, and he spent many sleepless nights as he would lift them up before God's throne of grace. And yet Paul writes here in this passage in verse 24 that I rejoice in what was suffered for you. He could rejoice in those sufferings because he knew it was for their gain. And ultimately, it is for our gain too that Paul did these things. If Paul had not persevered, if Paul had not been faithful to his calling, we wouldn't have much of the New Testament. But it was because of Paul's understanding of his commission and God's grace in his life that the gospel continued to move forward. And he writes here that I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. What did Paul mean by that? I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. That's a passage that many people have written on and they've studied and they've wrestled with. Well, maybe the best way to explain it, first of all, is what Paul does not mean. Paul does not mean that Christ's death was lacking in some way. It was not. Christ's death paid the penalty for our sins once for all. His atonement was sufficient for our salvation. Nothing is lacking in that regard. But there will be sacrifice and suffering in bringing the gospel to those who have never heard it before. And our union with Christ is such that when we suffer, He suffers. And in order to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, there are going to be individuals, men and women, called by God who will go out to the ends of the earth. And in the course of their ministry, they will suffer. And when we suffer, Christ suffers. And Paul understood that. Some have stated it this way, that our suffering is not for propitiation. It is not for salvation. Our suffering is for the propagation of the gospel. And you can think about that in history. At at the Nicene Council, for example, where we get the Nicene Creed, it was an important gathering of the leaders in the church in the 4th century A.D., And of the 318 delegates that attended that conference, fewer than 12 had not been tortured or suffered for their faith. Less than 12 out of 318 had not been thrown in prison 
were beaten, some had lost an eye, some had lost a hand, some were lame, walking on a leg that had been put out of joint by the things that they had suffered for Christ. They did it for our sake, to bring us the Scripture. W.D. Chamberlain believes that the greatest defect in the modern church is its cowardly retreat from the high demands of the Christian faith. Our day is no different from Paul's in requiring heroism, daring, and sacrifices from Christians. There is a cost involved in following Jesus. There is a cost involved in being a missionary who leaves the comfort of the surroundings they know and family and friends here to go to another country. I think of Carrie. I think of her willingness to go and to say goodbye to those people and things that she loves here and to go and follow Jesus Christ. But one day there's going to be a people group that will have the Word of God in their language, in their own tongue. And there will be people who will stand before God's throne in that final day who came to know Christ because of the sacrifice of a young woman who said yes to God's call. There's a cost involved in that. But the prize is worth the cost. And there's a cost involved in following Jesus here. I mean, there's a cost if you have a business and running a business by Christian principles and practicing fairness and integrity when others may be cutting corners or not doing that. And sometimes you may suffer for that. But in other ways, you will be richly blessed. And there's a cost in being a student who chooses to follow Christ rather than following the crowd and says, I'm not going to go there, I'm not going to do that even if it means at times being excluded, but you have chosen to follow Christ. And there are things that you will suffer and there are things that you will be blessed for because of it. There's a cost, and I don't want to apologize for that, the cost of following Jesus, because that is real. But the prize is worth the cost. When you go on in this text, we also see that a call to ministry is a call to share the mystery of Christ. We see that in verses 25 to 27. Paul saw himself as a servant of Christ and of the church. He said, I have become its servant by the commission that God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. Paul was commissioned by God to teach the Word of God in all its fullness, the whole counsel of God. And a call to ministry is a call then to share that Word of God with others. It is why I preach like I do. It's why I like to walk us through the Scriptures, verse by verse, you know, passage by passage, looking at it, helping you to understand what it means and apply it to our lives so that we might grow in our relationship with Him. We are called to declare the whole counsel of God, Old Testament and New Testament. And specifically, Paul writes that we are called to share this mystery that has now been revealed. It's an interesting way that the gospel puts this. The the word mystery means something that once was a secret, but now has been disclosed. And in the past, there were these hints about this Savior who was to come, this Messiah who would come and what He would be like. But now on this side of the cross, that has been revealed to us. 
And this mystery includes some unique elements, specifically that the gospel is for all people. In that day, it was a profound statement that the gospel, salvation, was for both Jew and Gentile. But in our world, we broaden that too to all the nations of the earth. The gospel is for those who today are living in the Arab nations in the Middle East or who may be Muslim. It is for those who are Chinese. It is for those who are African. It's for those who live in Latin America. The gospel is for all people. And part of our calling then is to take that gospel to those who do not know Jesus. And the heart of the gospel, the very center of the gospel, is this message about Christ and what He has done, that He has died for our sins, that He has forgiven us of our sins when we turn to Him. And that Christ in you, that's the hope of glory. That's our only hope. To have Christ living in us is the only ground of assurance we have that one day we will have eternal life. And what is staggering about that when you put that in the context is that Paul is saying this same Jesus that he described in verses 15 to 20 as the Lord of creation, as the image of the invisible God, as the one who created all things and who sustains all things, that same sovereign eternal God lives in you and lives in me when we open our heart to Him. Christ in you, that's the hope of glory. And praise be to God when you know that hope. And that is a message that we are called to share. We are called to share the gospel with those who don't know Him. Today, five white roses because somebody from our church chose to be involved in a ministry to some of the least of these in our world and went and presented the gospel so that they might know Christ. It's a ministry that we all are to be involved in. And I'd ask, who are you praying for? Who are you praying for, for their salvation? Or who is it that you are building relationships with? Or where are the opportunities for you to talk about Christ or to invite someone to come to church or come to some of our outreach events? How could God use you to be a witness for Christ? Thirdly, a call to ministry is a call to make disciples. And we see that in verse 28 when Paul writes that we proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. The goal of Paul's ministry was to bring people into a mature relationship with Christ. He wanted them to grow in their relationship. It wasn't just simply to make converts or to have people come to know Christ in some sort of basic level and then leave them there. But on the other side, the word perfect here doesn't mean sinless perfection. That would be unattainable in this life or in our ministry to people. The word perfect here means more, uh, or a better way to say it might be wholeness or maturity or complete the goal is to see that those individuals that we are working with and discipling are in Christ and they are growing in that relationship toward maturity. How do we do that? For Paul, the focus was always on Jesus. We proclaim Him. The key to a person's growth is their relationship with Christ. 
It's not about me. It's not about the church. It's not about you know a list of do's and don'ts. The focus is on Jesus. Are you getting to know Christ? What would Jesus do? Have you asked Jesus what it is that you should do or how you should live? The words admonish and teach explain how Paul went about making disciples. They're like two sides of a coin. Admonishing is the warning. It's warning people of our need to know Christ. It's warning people about the consequences of sin. It's warning people of what is to come. It also includes encouragement in that, encouraging people to take the next step of obedience. And then teaching is the other side of the coin. It's the instruction we get. It's helping people to understand the Scriptures and apply them to life. It might be explaining or answering questions. It includes training and equipping people. It's showing others what it means to follow Jesus by our example, by our words, and by our actions. And that's what Paul's going to do in this letter. Uh, when we come to verse 6 in chapter 2 and through the rest of the book, you know, he's going to talk about this is what it means to follow Jesus as a parent. This is how it applies to marriage. This is how it applies to work or your personal life. This is what it means to know Jesus and how we should live. But there's no substitute in that for life-on-life life learning. The time that we spend with other individuals in the body of Christ, those who have been involved in mentoring us or who were role models for us, we learn so much from their example. And as parents, we are the role models for our kids. And our kids learn from us. And so we need to think about that responsibility as a parent. What are we doing to both encourage or admonish or teach our children so that they might know Jesus Christ? And do they see Jesus at work in us? And do they see us growing in our faith that this is real and it's not just something where we're dropping them off at the door and then leaving, but we are growing in Christ ourselves. John Garland commented on this passage in the New International Version uh, commentary. And he said this. He said that in these verses, Paul sketches out his understanding of his commission from God, and he sketches out the identity and purpose of a local church. What is it that we should be doing as a church? And I really uh, like the way that he put this. He stated four things. Number one, that we as a church should present the Word of God in its fullness and make known its glorious riches. So one of our tasks in the church is to teach well the Scriptures. That's not just Sunday morning, but that's in our ABFs and small groups and with our children and youth as well as adults. To teach the Word of God and make known its glorious riches. Secondly, we are to proclaim Christ and admonish and teach in all wisdom so that believers are firm in their faith. We want to bring people to maturity. That's discipleship and help them grow and take those next steps. Thirdly, we want to create believers that are encouraged in heart, united in love and full of understanding. That's the community aspect, that we are together in this mission that God has called us to and we're growing in our relationships with one another. There is that sense of community in the church. And fourth relates to evangelism. We are to reach out with the good news to those whom some may deem unworthy and excluded. The least of these. Whether it is working with those in the jails, 
or the homeless in the cities or wherever God may call us, when we go on mission trips and we are working in many times in many places among those who are poor of the indigenous people, God honors that. And he uses those ministries to bring others to his son. And fourthly, a call to ministry is a call to rely on his power. All of the above things are impossible without his power working in us. We can't do it. We can't teach effectively. We can't disciple. We can't build community. We can't share the gospel effectively apart from his power in us. If we try to do it in our own strength, it's only going to be straw that one day is going to burn up. It won't succeed. We need Christ working in us. And that's what Paul states in verse 29. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy which so powerfully works in me. Paul labored in ministry. He worked hard. He worked in a profession of tent making along with preaching the gospel and traveling on his missionary journeys. And there were those who supported him in that work and who gave to help him as he traveled from place to place. But there were times when he just simply had to put in long, hard hours to make this happen. He agonized. And that's what this word struggling means in Greek. It's agonizo. You can hear the word agony in there. And it it describes like a wrestler who's in a competition and he's on the mat and he's with another foe and he's giving every ounce of energy to try and win. Paul agonized. He struggled in his work. Paul wrestled with the enemy. He wrestled with opposition. He wrestled with doubt. He wrestled with discouragement. He wrestled with failure. He wrestled with adversity. And you can hear those in Paul's letters when he is quite honest about the things that he went through. And yet there is also this note of hope, this positive attitude all the way through because of Christ. Paul was never alone in his struggle because Jesus Christ was at work in him. And that's what these other words in verse 29 talk about. That I labor, I struggle, but it is with all of His energy which so powerfully works in me. The reason Paul could keep going was because he had an unlimited source of energy. Christ and His Holy Spirit which which was at work in Him. Christ in you. He's the hope of glory. He's the source of our strength. Many years ago, Billy Graham, when he was beginning his ministry and the crusades that he was doing, was invited to go and speak in England. The year was 1954, and so he's sailing across the Atlantic on a ship in those days. And when they were traveling across, he began to experience a definite sense of oppression. Satan seemed to have assembled a formidable array of his artillery against me. And he said, not only was I oppressed, but I was also overtaken by a sense of depression, and I was accompanied by a frightening feeling of inadequacy for the task that lay ahead. Young man, evangelist, preaching the gospel, great invitation, let's go do this in England. And he's just feeling under the pile. 
God, how can I do this? God, I don't feel adequate for this at all. And he's wrestling with his doubt and his feelings of insecurity and inadequacy. And he's there with Ruth and they are praying and there are others traveling with them. And so day and night, they're praying, God, would you break through? God, would you give the strength that Billy is going to need to preach your word? And finally, one day, it's like the cloud lifted and the assurance came through and he wept before the Lord. And he was filled with this deep assurance that power belongs to God and he is faithful. And God would fill him and use him for the task that lay before him. And that proved to be true. It was one of his best crusades when many came to know Christ through that ministry. He writes that experiences like this kind have happened to me many times since. Sometimes no tears are shed. Sometimes as I've lain awake at night, the quiet assurance has come that I was being filled with the Holy Spirit for the tasks that lay ahead. However, there have also been many times when I would have to say, as the Apostle Paul did in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, that I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And frequently various members of my team have assured me that when I have had the least liberty in preaching or the greatest feeling of failure, that God's power has been most evident. It's one of those curious things to explain. I mean, I've had that sense too. Uh, sometimes I am reluctant when people ask me, either before or after a message, to say, well, how did it go today? I really don't know. Because there are times when I may speak and I may think, boy, I just nailed that today. You know, that was really good. Nobody says anything. And there are other times when you feel like I don't want to shake anybody's hand today because I just, I'd like to just go out the side door, please. And some of you are so gracious and you comment on what touched you that day. That's God's work. The feeling does not necessarily imply feeling. That you're going to feel like this all was right or good but it does mean that God's going to use you when you yield yourself to Him. A call to follow Christ is a call to ministry. If you're a disciple, if you are a follower of Jesus, then there's a ministry He wants you to be involved in. And some of you God may call to do that vocationally, full-time. You have questions about that? Talk to me or talk to one of our pastors, and we would love to encourage you and I'm praying for that that God will call people from our church into full time vocational ministry but I'm also praying that all of us will be involved in using our gifts in ministry in some way a call to ministry is a call to self denial it's a call to share the gospel it's a call to make disciples and it is a call to rely on his power let's pray Father, I thank you for the grace that you give for ministry. There is a joy in partnering with you in the work that you are doing around the world, even as we share today. And by our prayers and our support and our involvement in these various ministries, whether it's in Thailand or China or Guatemala or wherever it may be, God, you are using that, and we thank you for that. And Father, I pray also that you would show us what it is you want us to do right here 
in our church, in our community, that we might use the gifts that we have been given in a way that honors you. Father, we rejoice in that. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be growing in our relationship with you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.